Now, as we turn our attention to hear God's Word together, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Isaiah 55. As you turn with me to Isaiah 55, it's not a lengthy chapter, and we're going to try our best to consider the totality of it this morning. So listen as I read God's Word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples a leader and commanders for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose that which I, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we, as men and women, seek to take in your word, We recognize that your word is not like anything else, that it is eternal and abiding and spiritual truth, that it is a living word, and that to lay hold of it requires a spiritual understanding. So God, we ask that your spirit would grant us attentiveness, ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand. God, we come here today not merely to go through the church motions and customs and practices, but we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship you. Lord, we come that we might hear from your word and learn of your truth, that it would grip our hearts, it would move how we think, it would move how we serve, it would inform how we worship. God, we pray that you would cause your word to have its good and powerful effect 
in the hearts and lives of your people who are gathered here this morning. God, I ask again that you would be pleased to grant for me to speak clearly and faithfully. And I pray that you would be with everything that we do in this service and that you would be pleased and honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we take up Isaiah 55 this morning, now Isaiah is an interesting book that covers so many different things during a challenging season in the history of Israel. And regardless of the challenging season, into many of these different situations, there are prophecies of judgment against various nations here and there. And in the midst of these various prophecies and in the midst of these various promises, there are also sections that are really pointing forward to Christ. They're pointing forward powerfully to an expansion and an expression of the reality of God and the gospel call and salvation that really wasn't being known in those days. They, as Israel, were the people of God. There would be some people from time to time in the mercies of God who would be sojourners with them, foreigners who would attach themselves to them, but Israel as a whole, they did not go out to convert nations to their God. When they went out, it was to wage war and to battle and to defeat them. We are in a different situation, and this passage here actually comes into and points forward to a, a, a time of a preaching and a declaration of the gospel. And in so doing, it does it with such wording, such terminology, that it presents ideas that are very important for us to grasp, to see the power of the gospel, to see the, way, the ways and the means that the gospel works. There's beautiful things woven into this particular passage that I hope that I can lead us to a clearer sense of as we work through it today. The, first, the three things that we're really going to focus on in this chapter are the call, the comparison, and then the completion of God, His ways, His call, and His salvation. The first thing I want us to look at is the call, and it really begins right there in verse 1. Now, though most who gather here might be using the English Standard Version... I have to say once again, every version has its strength and strengths and weaknesses. Thankfully, in the mercies of God, almost all of the good and faithful translations, we gather good and solid truth. And the essence of the gospel and, and true doctrine can be discerned from almost every faithful translation that's available today. So we're thankful for God's mercy in that. In this particular passage, the ESV begins with a statement, Come. But that's not how the original begins. It begins, uh, but it begins with something that we don't do anymore or say anymore. It's not a part of our language. And so it's not there. Now there are a number, number of different ways to, to blurt this out. That is, it's intended to draw attention to the importance of what is being said. And so, uh, the, the most simple way it's often translated would be like this. Ho! But I don't think you've oft begun a sentence with the word ho. You know, and, and 
when, when you say that independently, if you're a gardener, your mind goes one direction. If you're thinking of Christmas, your mind goes another direction. The, but the sense of it, it, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's alas. Again, we don't use any of these to begin sentences today. The, the, the real uh, idea is it is an exclamation. It is, a, it is a calling out. It is an attempt to draw attention, to make known, I am here and I'm getting ready to say something. It is just that, that one statement shouting out that, that following that is all that he has to say. Now, what's interesting is the way that it's presented, it's presented a lot like a seller. Not that we sell the gospel, but, when, but what happens, and I, I have to give this picture, and I'm thankful for this experience. In India, you have people who go around selling things. And so you will have people who come walking around neighborhoods and walking around uh, hallways of apartment buildings who are selling things. They're selling vegetables. They're selling milk. They're selling breads. And you know what they're selling and when they're there because they make themselves known. They have their way of calling attention they, they, their voice cries out, and you know they're there. And as soon as they, they cry out, then they tell you what they have, whether they have vegetables or whether they have milk and what they have to sell. And so they, they make that known. Here I've come, and really this is what I'm bearing. This is what is available for you to purchase. In a similar sense, that's what this is referring to. It is a making known, and listen, this is what I'm bearing. And strangely enough, this is what's available for purchase. Now, it has with it a sense of urgency, a sense of, in, a sense of insistency. We're going to see later in this passage, it will say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Right? The, the same kind of thing as the person comes around and, and, and shouts that they're selling the vegetables. If you don't go out there and you decide I'm going to go out there two hours later, what's going to happen? They're not there. They've moved on. And so, so the, they make it known and you know it, it's there. Now, not that if somebody doesn't receive the gospel the first time we share it, that's it, they lose out. They were two hours too late, no gospel for you. No, that's not how it works. What we're seeing is the sense of urgency and insistency of the speaker. Okay? And so the first thing I want you to note in this is that does come, the call comes with a quadruple come. C-O-M-E. Now, in the ESV, it's four times in the first verse, but it's, it's only really three times in that first verse. And we see this. It says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then down in verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. This is quite insistent. Not only is, is the grammar and syntax of that word come an urging tone, but the repetition of it indicates the significance, the importance of this call. Come. 
Do not wait. Come. It's right here. Come and get it. I mean, there may be a sense in which mothers might be familiar with this kind of a thing. I know it has happened in my experience that possibly a meal is ready. And someone says, everybody come, dinner's ready. Five minutes later, no one has come. It ratchets up just a notch. Everybody come. Dinner is ready. And pretty soon it's, you got to come now. Dinner's getting cold. You know, each time it just bears this stronger sense of, get in here. Right? Well, I will say this. If someone is starving, if someone is absolutely hungry, what happens? Come, dinner is ready. Yeah, doors are slamming, people are running, and they're seated and ready to go. Wanting to eat even without praying, right? So there, there can be that insistence, but the first thing is there is this quadruple come. It is, it is to be urged. It is to be told. It is to be repeated. Come, come. It is an imperative sense. You must come. I urge you to come. You need to come. Not a light, not a small, but a significant thing. I also want us to see in this passage, not only is, is this quadruple call an insistent and an urgent and important and imperative, but it is also a capacious call. Now, I know not everybody uses the word capacious in their daily life, so how about a comprehensive call? In a sense, it says this, Still in verse 1, the second word, come everyone. The, the call to come is going out widely and indiscriminately. Everyone is being told to come, is it not? It doesn't say, come ye rich, but not ye poor. It doesn't say, uh, uh, come wise. It doesn't say, come righteous. It says, come everyone. It doesn't say, come Jew. It says, come everyone. Now, this is, a, this is a powerful sense because it really is pointing forward to the gospel that's going to come in the New Testament. Even as in a moment, it's going to speak of David and his kingship which is odd in the day of Isaiah because David is already dead and done. So the David reference that's being referred to by Isaiah is who? The one who will sit on David's throne eternally. It is a reference to Christ. But Colossians, for example, Colossians 3.11 says this. Here, there is no Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Everyone. The slave says, I can't come. Yes, you can. 
The master says, no, this is only for slaves. No, it is for masters and slaves, barbarian, Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised. It is a call that goes out indiscriminately across the face of the earth to people from every class and category of men. In Galatians, it adds further, there is no male and female. It, you are all one in Christ. There, there is nothing in our uh, heritage or practical humanity that excludes us from the everyone. Now, so it, it certainly can't say the one who's righteous. Now, someone would say, but didn't Jesus say he came not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance? Yes, and it's the same scripture that says none is righteous, no, not one. Which is, is there anyone righteous that he could call to repentance? No, there are no righteous. The only righteous were those who were righteous in their own minds, but not truly righteous. And so we see the capaciousness of this call or the comprehensiveness that it is to everyone, every class, every gender, every race, every tongue, tribe, nation. It does not matter what, what sins an individual has been involved in. It does not matter what supposed religi religiosity someone has been involved in. It doesn't matter if they've been a, in a cult. It does not matter. They are urged to come. Now this capacious call, I've got to draw your attention to a second point here. It is also a confined call. Though it is to everyone with regard to every class and every condition uh, in terms of where men are, it does say this very clearly. I was reading, uh, as I was doing various readings this week in uh, uh, final preparation for this, uh, there were arguments against some very firm biblical truths on God's specific electing purposes and trying to say that this passage argues against that. But I want us to see very clearly what it says. Come or ho, everyone what? Everyone who thirsts. So who's not being called? Those who don't thirst. The invitation is, is wide and broad to every category and class of mankind. The condition that is imposed upon them, the condition that, they, there ha that has to exist in them is what? They must thirst. If they don't thirst, will they come? If they don't thirst, will they desire these waters? What's interesting about that, it says everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The wonderful waters in the plural. And then it has powerful allusions, this does, to coming to the word of God, to the reception of the word of truth. Because look how it builds in there. What do you also do? Come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. And so here, waters, wine, and milk. That which is necessary for life. That which nourishes and sustains. That which cheers the heart. So those phrasings for the ancient Hebrew mind... 
That's comprehensive. When you, when you go with waters and wine and milk, that, that's, the, that's the rich, full array of all that we take in and benefit from in this world. Now, this is moving in a slightly different direction, and I want us to see this. When it says, come, you who are thirsty, is everyone thirsty? See, for example, when we talk about issues, I was speaking this morning, when the scriptures, for example, tell us that we were by nature dead in our trespasses and sin. How thirsty are dead men. No, they're neither thirsty nor responsive. And so the, there needs to be this condition of, of thirst, and, this, and, and for there to be thirst, there to some extent needs to be life. Even I might add, add another thought in here. The scripture reminds us, even as we were considering this morning, to some extent from Second Peter, uh, men have ears, but they do not hear. They've become deaf of hearing. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. That sinful condition darkened in their understanding. Well, listen. If someone comes and says, come. Come to the waters. Come buy and eat without price. If you cannot hear and you do not thirst, what will be the response? But I want us to know this. Just like the salesperson who's going around, they have no idea who needs vegetables. They have no idea what is the stock, what is the need, what is the menu? They have no idea what anybody needs. And so they are going around indiscriminately declaring, I have this. Who wants it? And so listen, brothers and sisters, we do that. Our goal is not to go around and try to figure out, are you thirsty? Can you hear? Because God is able to take one. Some, in the middle of our sharing of the gospel and well up a thirst in them. He is able to take them. The, the scriptures at, at, at times refer to it in this way in the Hebrew. He has, he has dug out their ears for them is the way it is more literally in the Hebrew in certain places. It doesn't come across that way in our translation because it's kind of an uncomfortable image. But, but that's the sense. When we are coming to share the gospel with people, and, and many of us had that in our experience, God was pleased to open up our ears. God was pleased to give us a hunger and thirst, and we attended to it. Many of us have the experience where, especially if we grew up in Christian environments, we heard it before. And we heard it again, and we heard it again, and we heard it a thousand times, and we heard it at camp, and we heard it at VBS. And all of those times we heard it, but why did we not come? Why did we not respond on those days, but then that day, that glorious day, I came and I laid hold of, and I bought, and I drank, and I took it in, and I was changed. What was different between one day and another? 
One day you had ears to truly hear. One day you were, that, that hearing of the word was met with a thirst. Now here, here I want to say this also as, as, as a part of a challenge to understand this. That thirst is the work that God produces. And so what do we pray? As we're going out to share the gospel, God bring me to thirsty people. God, bring me to those who are looking, uh, looking for the waters. Means those that you are drawing. Those that you have begun to give a sense of the, of the emptiness of this life. Of, of the, the wastedness of all that is out there. Um, I want to see also show you this. Um, it says this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. We know this from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. As much as we would like it, those who thirst for hunger and righteousness, is that everybody? Is that everyone we've ever met, everyone we ever know? No. Those who do are the blessed. And what a glorious thing to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for the righteousness that even to a large extent is worked within us through the power and influence of God's word and spirit. Listen to what it says as Jesus goes forward on the last day of the great feast in John chapter 7. It says this on the last day of the feast in verse 37. The great day Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts. Again, the same kind of thing. If anyone thirsts, what does he say to them? Come to me and drink. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, but there is a specificity to that call that even Jesus sets out there. If anyone thirsts. Even sometimes, uh, let's, let me finish reading that. And Jesus goes on to say this. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believe were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. In Isaiah, it reminds us in chapter 6 of the condition of this people in their, nature, in their sinful condition. It says, make this, the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There is that hardness. There is that deadness. Jesus again says in John 6, and we remember John 4 with uh, the woman at the well. But in John 6, he also says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that my Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So all of those that the Father gives him. And all that come to him, the scripture will also says this, they will all be taught by the Father. He, by the power of the Spirit through the gospel, produces in them that sense of, I am thirsty, I have need, I have desire that only Christ can satisfy. And all that the Father gives, come to Him. And all who come to Him, all the thirsty who come to Him to drink, not a one will be turned away. Amen? 
This is beautiful. More than that, it even expansively, we see the worrisome condition spoken of even for the children of Israel, even referencing how sinful hearts even work. In Hosea 13, 6, it says this, when they had grazed, this is the children of Israel as they've come into the land and they've benefited from all of God's practical worldly provisions. When they had grazed, they became full and were filled and their hearts were lifted up and they forgot me. They had that mentality, this is what I want. The only, only, almost for the children of Israel, the the value of God is that he's going to prosper us. And so uh, if we're prospering, if we're enjoying these things, if we have what we really want, we're good. But shouldn't it be God that we really want? There's that beautiful sense in which we we see that the, the Levites were the Levitical priesthood. And we ourselves as a holy nation have become a kingdom of priests. And unlike all of the other tribes, they did not have an earthly inheritance. The Lord, He will be their portion. You know, and and I, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through that and where it's repeatedly saying, the Levites will have no inheritance among them, the Lord will be their portion. To me, each time I read that, my heart goes, wow. They got so much better, so much more than all the others who are boasting about the rivers in their land, the the fertile uh, ground to grow vineyards, the beautiful hills. All these different tribes had these different salient features to the lot that they inherited. But did any of it really compare to what was given to the Levites? And so we also have this sense. Matthew reminds us in Matthew 6, 32, the Gentiles seek after these things, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That should be your thirst, him. More of him, more of what pleases him, more of his own excellence, more of his own character displayed in my life. And that's why we see that interesting parallel that I like to draw your mind to in Revelation chapter 3. That church that had given up their first love, we see this, this clear difference where They have not the spiritual sense of what is real. They have not spiritual desires. God has said to them. Really, yeah, let me turn there. It says, verse 17 says this. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. I mean, that's that's their assessment. Here is where we're at in our life. I'm good. I like the things I've got. I like the things around me. I'm doing well. I need nothing. Does that person thirst? Does that person hunger for righteousness? No. That's their self-assessment. And into that, we have the words of Christ spoken, giving the divine assessment, which says this. Not realizing that you are wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that, that's all strong language, isn't it? Wretched. <laughs> Never a complimentary phrase. Poor. Blind. And, and again, we note this. Every, these people will say, what are you talking about? We are not naked. We wear the finest of clothes. I mean, we're better dressed than you guys. What do you mean we are poor? We are extremely wealthy. Because what are they looking at? What are they assessing? See, their pursuits, their desires, and their sense of satisfaction comes from what? The world. And as a result, they think they're full. And until God opens their eyes and they come to understand, wait, this is nothing. This doesn't satisfy. This doesn't work. I am pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Because when, when we look at this, it's interesting. Not only are these people thirsty, go back in the passage with me if you would. It says, come. Okay. Everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, and he who has no money. Now, it's given a second qualification here. The first qualification of the called is they must be, they are thirsty. The second qualification is they have no money. And a lot of us might be saying right now, ah, finally one I'm qualified for. No. The, listen. Now, do people have money? Did the people in, in the church at Re, of Revelation, did they have money? Yes. But the sense is this. There is nothing that I can give to gain these waters. They are absolutely outside. I have nothing to offer of value. Everything that I would think that I could somehow put forward, my righteousness, it's, it's filthy rags. The riches of this world, they mean nothing to a holy God. I have nothing. Really what happens is, is when the gospel call is going out and the spirit of God is working, he brings the people of God, those that he has given to Christ, he brings them to a sense of, I need this. I desperately am drawn to this like someone who is drawn to water when terribly parched. I am being uh, from within, I find myself longing to lay hold of this and drink it and take it in and enjoy it. And they also recognize this. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing of value. That sense of, I have nothing to pay. It's not, it's not we bring our righteousness, we bring our goodness. And some people say, um, I have nothing to give, so I will give myself. Well, do you really even own yourself? You don't actually, because what is the condition of men? We are slaves of sin, which means we have another master until we are set free from that by the powerful ransomed blood of Christ and we are now made slaves of God in righteousness. And even that everything that ever exists in creation belongs to God. 
Even the devil and even the demons, all of them are under the purvey of his power and all of them will answer to his judgment because he is indeed Lord over all. We've used that phrase a lot of times in our lives, Lord over all, but somehow we always keep it in lower categories than, than where it really needs to go. He who has no money. Now, it's a, it's a strange phrasing, even phrasing that, I guess, in basic language makes no sense. And this is the beauty. Whenever something makes no sense in the Word of God, then you've got to say, aha, there is something of real spiritual value being conveyed here because in the ordinary world, this makes no sense. Listen to what it says. He who has no money, come by. Right, how in the world does someone who have no money come and buy? See, that language simply doesn't work. And then it goes on and says what? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so here comes this mystery. How can I buy something that I can't pay for? And to a certain extent right here, it just kind of leaves it. You know, the fuller revelation of the New Testament comes forward and we come to understand what, what still to some degree remains a mystery here. You can buy it because in a sense it has been purchased for you. The price has been paid in full. It is yours. Come. Come to the waters. Take. Drink. Buy. Just gather it up. Gather it up. Go past the checkout stand and smile on the way by. You don't have to pull out the wallet. You don't have to pull out cash or card. It has been paid by Christ. And I tell you, when you consider what Christ has purchased, the concept of cash and card just so pale not only that we also see the third sense of this confined it says this verse 3 why do you spend your money and bread for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy now that again there's a mystery woven in there because they're probably going to say, wait, we actually spend our money for bread. Well, Jesus would even say he's the bread of life. Even his disciples at some times would think when Jesus was speaking about bread, that he was talking about earthly bread because their minds are so fixed on the here and the now. Here he sa it says... Money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy. When God has stirred up in someone that, that hunger, when he has given them that recognition that they have nothing to trade, barter, or offer. They have nothing. They are without money and without price. And he's begun to give them a sense of, none of this really satisfies. None of this really endures. None of this is really important. There, there, is, there is a more important bread. Jesus says he is the bread of life. 
Jesus tells his disciples, I have bread to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the work of my Father who sent me. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Showing that there is such greater significance than earthly bread. The idea of laying hold of Christ and his power and person and all that he is. The idea of, of in the power of Christ, living within us, serving in obedience to the pleasure of the Father. And taking in the richness of his word for the enrichment and nourishment of our souls. There is a bread that satisfies. There is a drink that satisfies the thirsty. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus says, come to me and, you, and eat of this bread and you will never hunger and you will never thirst. When God himself, by his grace, stirs up that spiritual life that, that, that finds its need for Christ and finds its understanding of who he is in the proclamation of the gospel, we must come. And until we do, there is that hunger and there is that drawing. There is that grace powerfully at work. And that's why we remember what it says in John 6, 44 and John 6, 65. What are those passages? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And the wonderful way that the Father so often draws us is by sending his Spirit, bringing the conviction of sin. Helping us to begin to recognize, I have nothing to offer. Quickening within us a sense of life to hear the gospel with a sense of understanding and developing within us a thirst so that now we are searching for the waters. And when we come to those waters, what do we find? Refreshment, acceptance for our souls. No one who comes to the waters is turned away. Because those who come are those who thirst. So that's why we need to pray that God would stir up a thirst in all of those around us. A sense of, of the dissatisfaction and hopelessness of things. What's interesting also as you come to the end of this, uh, of the book, uh, the, the end of the entire Bible, you get to Revelation chapter 22 verse 17 and it says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life take without price. This same thing that's being spoken of in, here in Isaiah points forward to its absolute fulfillment. And who is it? It's all those who find themselves in the new heaven and the new earth. Those who have had that thirst stirred up, had that sense of desire, who have been enabled to hear that call and by the stirrings of life and hunger and thirst, the awareness of need and hopelessness, they are brought to Christ. What a powerful picture the scripture lays out. I tell you this, uh, I was so thankful to know that my inheritance was reserved in heaven as a child. But as the scriptures have continued to unfold to me an understanding of how the grace of God actively worked to bring about my salvation and my life not leaving me in my sin. And to understand the grace that was poured out upon me. I tell you, the, the, the 
humility in the sense of God is everything. Even it just transforms us because we begin to say this. Boy, I'm never going to trust my heart and my mind and my thoughts again. All of that I'm going to have to set on the side and let God tell me how things are and how things work. And that's going to lead us quickly into the second point. But before that, um, so let us go into the comparison now. So we've seen the call. Let us look at the comparison. Come down with me, if you would, to verse 8 and 9. In verse 8 and 9, it says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So here is the comparison. And the comparison, it, 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 the only way I can explain this is, it is a comparison that is incomparable. I mean, it, it, there, there's no way that it fits together. What, what I love about this is, again, we live in the supposed age of advanced science, don't we? Yes, we know everything, and we can measure everything, and uh, not really. Wanna, I want to read for you. In, in the context of this, it, it says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, I can throw this out there for you. What is that measurement? And have any of you measured it recently? No. Well, let me read a little something for you uh, that I looked up that I found thought was quite interesting. This was in March 24th, 2017 from Forbes magazine. It said this, you might think of the universe as infinite. Now, this is a complete unbeliever writing as infinite. And quite honestly, it might truly be infinite. <laughs> they, they're basically saying, we don't know. And then he's going to go on to tell you what it really measures. So they assert as probable fact, while still to some degree, if they're honest, asserting, yeah, not. it might truly be, uh, but we don't think, listen, but we don't think we'll ever know for sure. As far as we know, the universe extends for 46.1 billion light years in all directions from us. Which is not something that we can really fathom. Because one, we generally don't travel around at the speed of light. Beyond that, none of us live for a single billion of years. Let alone 46.1 billion years. Let me read something also that came out of the Express newspaper in the UK concerning it. It says this, the universe is, again, these are unbelievers, incomparably, incomprehensibly huge. And as humans, we will probably never be able to wrap our heads around just how big it is. However, our brains, as our brains are not capable of fathoming that distance, there is something about it which makes it seem as if it is not that great. 
And then he goes on to quote this astronomer, Royal Martin Rees. I don't know this fellow. Likened it, the understanding of the size of the universe, to a chimpanzee trying to understand Albert Einstein's theories. He once said, some aspects of reality, a unified theory of physics or a full understanding of consciousness, might elude us simply because they're beyond our human brains, just as surely as Einstein's ideas would baffle a chimpanzee. And that is just the observable universe, what we are able to see. Beyond that is unknown. Experts believe that the universe is probably infinite and does not have an edge, making all of these numbers seem even more insignificant. In other words, they don't know. It just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going, and, and the estimated measurements continue to change from year to year, as, as well as the estimated age of the universe from year to year in the minds of these people. And that's the comparison that God in his word says is the difference between your and mine ways and thoughts compared to his. So, that's why the scriptures often tell us things like this. His ways are inscrutable and his judgments are unsearchable. Unsearchable. The way that that's translated in the NIV is beyond finding out which is a very helpful expression. His ways, why he does things, some, some things the way he does them, are beyond our finding out and beyond our understanding. And yet how much time do we spend saying, well, I don't understand why God would do it like that, so it's probably not true. If you don't understand it, then it maybe leans towards being true. Because if you understand it, your ways are not his. Now, just because you don't understand something, it could be because it's just a bunch of nonsense as well. But if the scriptures say something very clearly, and part of our heart says, well, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. I don't understand why. I don't understand how. We get to say this. Ah, I know why I don't understand why. I know why I don't understand how. Here I am, and there he is. Higher, higher, higher. So I believe it, I accept it, I agree to it, I rejoice in it, I worship accordingly. Why? Because he's revealed it to be true. True whether or not I can comprehend it. We still will, I've still yet to meet anyone who fully wraps their mind around the fact that there is one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. So is there one or three? There is one. But is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one? Yes. How is it either? It's, it has to either be three or one. I don't accept one plus one plus one. Father plus Son plus Spirit equals God. One plus one plus one must equal three, not one, right? And what do we say? There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Muslims say, you're mad. 
It doesn't make any sense. And the world says that's crazy. How can you believe in something, a, a Trinitarian God, when, when that defies all of our sense of logic and order? Well, because God's not like us. His ways aren't our ways, His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And I'm thankful that across the broad scale of evangelical Christianity, everybody accepts the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three in one. And in that mystery, we lay hold of it by faith as revealed in God's Word. There's a lot of other wonderful, powerful mysteries revealed in God's Word that for some reason, men are far more hesitant to glory in. But by the grace of God, we will continue to come to those waters and drink. Come to that milk and wine and take it in. And as we take in the richness of God's word, we are going to be nourished. We are going to be satisfied. We are going to be built up. Our hearts are going to be cheered as we do so. And so what a remarkable comparison between us and God's ways and thoughts. And let me move on to the idea of the completion. Verse 10 to 13. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. This is the remarkable confidence. The word that God has sent forth and the word that God has given even to us to declare to the world. We have every confidence, as it tells us in the book of Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so what do we do? We preach the gospel. Now, Paul speaks of that kind of ministry in different ways. He speaks of himself and he speaks of Apollos as one may plant seeds and another may water. But neither the one who plants the seed or the one who waters is what? Anything but God provides the increase. So as we go out and as we declare the gospel, as we declare Christ Jesus, the Son of God, come into the earth, take on the form of a man, live a sinless life, sacrifice himself on the cross, paying the price of God's wrath and the full penalty for full pardon for all of his people. Died, rose again, and ascended to the Father will come again to judge the living and the dead. As we glory in that, and as we declare that reality, that the world might say, well, this is foolishness. But what do we know? God calls people out of that foolishness. Through the folly of what we preach, He sends forth life. And so we have this confidence, we declare it. Because you know what? When God's word that he has given goes forth, it accomplishes the purpose that it is supposed to accomplish. In Corinthians, we see that same gospel, that same message of Christ is an aroma of life to life and aroma of death to death. Life to life among those who are being saved, death to death among those who are perishing. The same thing. The gospel goes out, and, and men who reject it, they receive on themselves a greater condemnation as they reject and rebel against the word of God. But the gospel, the word, the truth, is sent forth to bring men into greater judgment and, and others to deliver them entirely. From the judgment that was to come on them. 
And so we see this. What does it do? So my word shall be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. So when I preach today or when, when you speak to, to your neighbor or you speak to your coworker, you are declaring it. You may not know if it's a day of planting seeds. You may not know if it's a day of watering seeds. You may not know if it's a day of harvest. That's all right. It will accomplish God's purpose. You just keep getting it out there. But the person I'm sharing it with, they don't seem thirsty. They don't seem to realize they have nothing to offer God. That they're not good enough. They don't seem to realize the unsatisfactory condition of this world. Pray. Because it is only the grace of God that can bring them to that. But I'll tell you this. It's not everybody you've ever, ever offered a glass to. I mean, some of you may see in certain long-standing events and runnings and marathons and treks, there's all these different stands set up where a person can go by and grab a cup of water. But there are some times where a person is running past a table and maybe someone's holding it out and they don't grab it. You know why? At that moment, they're not thirsty. The next table, maybe they're going to grab two cups, one to drink and one to pour on their head. And, and, and so you don't need to worry about what is the effect. You and I have the privilege of pouring out the word and calling people, come, come to Christ. Even we remember the words of Christ. Jesus has come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. So again, what's the qualification of those who are coming? They are weary and heavy laden. They're not those who think that they've got it all together. Everything is good and everything is strong. He brings us to an end of ourself, a sense of our worthlessness, a sense of our hopelessness, a sense of our desperation, a sense of our sinfulness and need. And he reveals to us Christ. Here is the waters. Here is refreshment. Here is life. Here is hope. Here is everything that I need. Everything that I long for. And I encourage you to go back on your own today um, and just read through this passage, praying through it. Because you have this wonderful urging within the context of this passage where God, as he calls those people in verse 6, to seek the Lord while he may be found. That's what coming to the waters is. Call upon him while he is near. We urge people, you must come to Christ. You must come to the Lord. And when you come to him, you come with nothing in your hand. But when you come, you also leave behind the things that you thought were so loving and valuable. Because what does it say in verse 6? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. I don't bring anything with me, but I surely leave a lot behind. And I come, and I come to him. And here's the beauty of it. What happens when you come like that? You will surely find compassion. He will turn no one away. Everyone who comes to him, he will not cast them out. So let's get that word out. 
Let's pray that God would stir up hunger. Pray that God would give people ears to hear. Pray that God would give them a sense of of the fact that they have nothing to offer. Pray that God would give them a dissatisfaction with everything in the world. That he would work his grace. All of grace belongs to him. The gospel he has entrusted to us. I mean, that's an astounding thing. He has chosen not to send angels to to distribute the gospel. He has chosen not to declare it from heaven. He has made us the messengers of reconciliation. It is through our preaching of the gospel. Unless we are sent, unless they hear, no one will call upon the name of the Lord. But they must call upon Him in truth. And a calling upon Him in truth is what? Filled with these things. I have nothing to offer. You have everything that I need. You have everything that I truly want. You are my all in all. It is a calling that forsakes the flesh and forsakes the life. Why? Because the Spirit is shedding us of those things. There is in that divine transaction, the Scripture says, we have crucified the flesh with its desires. So that when that conviction comes, we say, I want this no more. I want this always and more and more and more. Oh, everyone come to the waters. And I like the fact that it says waters and bread and milk because listen, we get to keep coming. We get to keep taking in those waters and we get to keep taking in that milk and keep taking in that wine. That life sustaining, that enriching and nourishing, that heart cheering and gladdening. Brothers and sisters, it is all ours in Christ by the working of the Spirit through the giving of His Word. We are a blessed people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those that God has given a hunger and thirst for Christ and His Word. That He's given them a sense of the uselessness of all and that Christ alone truly is all. Let's pray. Lord, as we just close out our consideration of this passage this morning, I, there is always this strong feeling that I cannot emphasize it strongly enough. That, the, that my words and my efforts to communicate don't do full justice to just how essential and how important your word is, how powerful it is, how transforming it is, how dependent we are on on your grace, your spirit working to bring conviction, to stir up a thirst, to draw us with a longing, to bring us a a sense of our own wickedness. Uh, God, I just pray, and I'm so thankful that ultimately it is your word that is read, and your spirit revealing your truths to the hearts and minds of your people. So I'm thankful that in spite of my own sense of limitations to convey this with the, uh, what I feel is the fullest sense of urgency that it deserves. Um, I thank you, God, that your word uh, and your spirit can do that in the hearts of those who are here. For those of us um, who have been flagging in our faithfulness, to make known, to declare the waters, to declare that and call people to come without price, 
to let them know what Christ has completely accomplished. Lord, may we be emboldened knowing that it is by that that you bring life and transformation. Lord, for those of us who know your grace, as we now consider it and we recognize that uh, the reason we ourselves are in Christ is because you gave us ears to hear. You gave us life that we might thirst. You stirred up that, that recognition of our wretchedness, our pitiableness, our poorness, our nakedness. And you brought us to be clothed in Christ and to hope in Him. God, we are so thankful for the salvation that you have given us in your Son. We declare with the saints in the book of Revelation, salvation belongs to our God. And Lord, we are thankful that you have bestowed it on us. May we understand in an in in a increasingly humbling sense the rich gift that is ours. And may that humility and gratitude stir us, O oh Lord, to make broad proclamation, to make it known to everyone and let us see who you stir thirsting in. Lord, we glory in you. We long to see you begin to pour out your spirit to bring about a deep hunger and thirst in this local community. Lord, we would love for there to be genuine conversions and baptisms and, and deep heartfelt revivals taking place where, where Christianity is, is vibrant and energetic. And Lord, we pray Whatever role that we would have in serving your kingdom to see that take place in and around Marshall. Lord, we pray that you would give us a boldness and that we would not shrink back. In Jesus' name, amen.